again if you're new. I'm Pastor Brent. Very excited to open up the scriptures with you today. Uh, I'd like to begin with a story. Um, June of 1999 was a pivotal moment in my life. School had just gotten out and it was the first week of summer vacation. I was in the thick of baseball season, just loved playing baseball as a kid, and I remember everything really seemed great. Um, on that Friday of the first week of summer break, uh, my parents received a call from the doctors who'd been examining a bump on my, brother's, my twin brother's leg, and they told my parents that it was bone cancer. And so they said, your, you know, your son needs to go to Stanford Children's Hospital as soon as possible. And I remember this moment like it was yesterday. I'll never forget my parents calling my brother in uh, as we were playing outside to talk with him after they got this phone call. And so they spoke with him privately. And then my mom and my dad and my brothers, my brother, they, they came out and they called our whole family into the living room and sat us down, me and my other siblings, and told us the news. And I'll just say, friends, I remember being so scared. I remember seeing the fear in my brother's eyes and, and the tears from my parents. And you know what they did? They simply looked at our family and they just said, let's pray. Like, what else can you do in that moment? And the next 18 months, I know I've shared some of this story before, but the next 18 months were extraordinarily difficult. My brother underwent chemotherapy treatments, had his leg amputated. My family spent multiple days a week at the hospital for about a year, year and a half. And, and we, we got to know other families whose kids had the same kind of cancer. And by the end of my brother's treatment, he was the only one who survived this type of cancer. As a teenager during this time, I was confronted with the frailty of life. Why was God doing this? I, mean, I was asking all kinds of questions. What am I doing here? What's the purpose of my life? Why am I alive? Why, why did this not happen to me? I began to struggle with all kinds of questions of, of, of internal doubt and, 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 and questions and struggles within. And, and what happened at this moment is it was this inflection point where I could see this fork in the road in my life widening right out in front of me. The question that I kept thinking of is, am I going to live for Christ or not? Am I going to choose to walk by faith right now with how hard this is to see what in the world is going on? Am I going to let this pain and doubt overtake me and choose to run and hide and protect myself from more pain? It was at this moment where I could see like my life was, it was this fork in the road in front of me that the Lord brought a mentor to, to speak into my life, a dear Christian brother, a youth leader at our church named Greg, who invited me and some friends to start a Bible study. And I remember showing up to this hard-hearted and feeling like I was, it was just hypocrisy. Like in my heart, I didn't really want to be there or to do it, have anything to do with it. And I remember this, this dear friend, Greg, as he opened up his home as he welcomed me with grace and understanding, as he listened to my raw emotions, as I just told him what I really thought, as he prayed with me, and then as a group, as we sang songs of worship, as we studied the Bible together, as I saw this man display a vibrant, living faith in the Lord. 
the Holy Spirit did something in my heart. Friends, I'll never forget the moment when everything changed. This mentor, Greg, he, he frequently went on missions trips, and he was fluent in Spanish. So he would get invited to go to missions trips. We were out in California. He would often be down in Mexico or Central America or South America. And I remember um, he had just come back from a trip in Peru. And after one of our Bible studies, he pulled me aside, and we were just having a one-on-one -on -one conversation about what it means to live fully for the Lord. And he pulled out a bill of money from his pocket in the currency of Peru. He had just come back from Peru. And he handed it to me. And he looked me straight in the eyes. And he said, Brent, spend your life on God. When you look at this, I want you to remember to spend your life on God. After everything that had happened the last few years with my brother's cancer, my struggles to understand why, what I felt was this growing selfishness, this hypocrisy, this, this doubts that were coming, it, it, the, all of it, it just sort of hit me like a freight train in that moment. I decided then and there I was going to fully live for God, come what may. I'm going to spend my life on him, whatever place he calls me. Whatever way he calls me, no matter where, no matter how difficult, I just said, I want to live for Jesus. I want him to actually be the king of my life. Friends, we have to ask ourselves the same question. Who are we living for? What, what kingdom are we trying to build? How do we view our lives? The frailty, the, 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 the momentary, like as the Bible says, we're like, flower that withers, the grass that sort of fades away. How do we view the, the, the resources, the relationships, the skills, the time, and all of the opportunities that are in front of us? How can we put these into gospel-centered, kingdom-minded perspective? See, I, what we're going to hear today is a vision for being a transforming church where we understand that we are stewards of the gospel. We are stewards of what God has entrusted to us. We've been talking about being welcoming, transforming, sending. Today we're going to look at what it means to be a transforming church where we're stewards of the gospel. This incredible treasure we've been entrusted with. So open with me to Matthew 25. Grab your Bible. Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. If you need a copy of the Bible, raise your hand. I uh, would love to have you see this. So the Gospel of Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. And so if you're opening up to your Bible there, Matthew chapter 25, we're going to be reading a parable of Jesus that occurs right in the middle of some teachings that Jesus shares with his followers while they await his return. And so what we're going to be reading here is, is, is you got to understand the context of the book of Matthew, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a moment. But Jesus is just about to go to the cross. And before he does, he tells his disciples about their kingdom responsibility during this era of the church between his first and second coming. And so this is what he says the kingdom of heaven is like and what, what we are to do now while we await his return. So let's read Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag. 
each according to his ability. Then he went on a journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man. Harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gathered where I've not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him. And give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. What an incredible story. Uh, what we're going to do is we seek to understand this passage is do three things. I want to briefly examine the context of Matthew's gospel because we need to understand when this parable occurs and the purpose behind Jesus sharing it at this particular moment. And then we're going to walk through the parable carefully to see what Jesus is teaching us and then apply it to our lives individually and then as a church. So context, then the parable, and then application. All right, so let's jump in. Let's talk about the context of Matthew 23 to 25. Now, um, if you go in your Bibles here, skip back a page or two and go with me and skim with me, go to chapter 23, and I want you to see here that the gospel, in the gospel of Matthew here, the text captures these teachings of Jesus just days prior to the Last Supper, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. And the key that I want you to see is that these chapters are the parting words of, about what is expected of Jesus' followers while they await his return. You see, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's saying, this is what I expect of you while you await my return to judge and renew all things. And so in 23 through 25, here's what happens. Chapter 23, Jesus warns about hypocrisy. He says, we need to live with integrity to live our lives fully devoted to him. What you say you believe, you need to follow through and do. 
That's chapter 23. Chapter 24, he reminds us about the end times. He reminds us of eschatology. He looks ahead to the future and the destruction of the temple, the signs of the end. And he says, time is short. Don't waste your life. Then in chapter 25, we see that he calls his disciples to watchfulness and fruitfulness, to live for his kingdom. Live with integrity. Time is short. Go work for my kingdom in everything that you do, he says. So here's what I want you to see, friends. I hope and pray that the Lord has used the events. Let's just put it into our context. The events of the last few years. Or even just looking at this last week, to be honest. To put things in proper perspective for you. We've been bombarded with all kinds of either false claims for salvation, things that will save us, uh, uh, promises. We've been bombarded with division and anger and all. I mean, just you name it. It's been, uh, you read the news and how discouraging things can be. I hope, friends, and I pray that as Jesus points out what, what context his disciples are going to live in, as he points to how hard it's going to be, to look at the things coming as we get near the end, he says, that we're living in the last days. And his question is, whose kingdom are you living for? So that's the context of the parable. All right. So now let's look at the parable itself. The parable of the talents. Many of your Bibles uh, kind of use that language. We'll talk about it in a moment. Let's dive right in here. Now, there's a man going on a journey. And this is referring to Jesus ascending to heaven. All right, so Jesus is looking at him and saying, hey, the master is going to go on a journey. And then he entrusts his wealth to his servants, which is like Jesus entrusting us with all kinds of skills and relationships and time and money and ultimately the message of the gospel. We have been entrusted as God's servants while he, while the Lord Jesus is at the right hand of the father. And so look at verse 15 with me. Um, as we go through this, the, this man entrusts his servants with bags of gold, or as many of your Bibles say, talents. Now, a talent is a unit of measurement that equals about 20 years of wages. And so this master entrusts one of his servants with 100 years of wages, Okay, five talents, 20 years, right? A hundred years of wages. Then he entrusts the other one with 40 years worth of wages. And then the other with 20 years worth of wages. Now, I did the math to figure this out. So it could put it in a little bit of context for you. Let's just say, even if we're most conservatively, we use minimum wage in Minnesota. 10.59 an hour, just to be extremely conservative, right? If my abacus is calibrated right, <laughs> five talents is $2,118,000. Two talents is $847,200. One talent, $423,600. That's a lot of money. Now, if you were to use the median household income of Dakota County, five talents would be $9.7 million. Two talents, $4 million. One talent, $2 million. Here's the point, okay? If you're reading this in the first century, five talents, two talents, one talent, you would look at this and say, this master entrusted his servants with huge sums of money. 
These are amounts of money that the average worker could hardly fathom earning in an entire lifetime. And that is the exact reason why Jesus uses these figures in this parable. He wants you and me to reflect on these numbers and say, that would take my whole life to have those resources. That would be everything I have. That's exactly the point. Is that everything you have belongs to the master. He uses such large sums of money that you'd say, that's everything. He's entrusted you with his treasure. Now, don't miss this. We see these large amounts of wealth that are given to the servants and the amount of responsibility they have. But did you see the last line there, kind of towards the end of verse 15? He gave the five talents, the, the two, the one, and then the text says, each according to his ability. There is a sense in this of the sovereignty and the goodness of the master. That he knows what they're capable of. That he, his expectations are correct. His expectations are right on. That it's an expression of his goodness and his kindness to them by not giving them more than they can handle, but on the other side, not giving them less than they have the ability to invest. He gives them the right amount. Not more than they can handle, not less than what they can use. But this is where the parable begins to have this purposeful split, okay? Uh, I love this parable because there's a, there's a contrast that's developed throughout it because there's two different reactions and two different results by the servants. And so this parable sets up this series of contrasts, and I want to walk you through them over the, the next few minutes here. So the first contrast we see is the contrast of stewarding versus squandering in verses 16 to 18. And what we see here between the two different kinds of servants, the, the ones with two, five and two talents and the one with one, is that there's a sense of stewarding that two of the servants immediately put the money to work. Now, we often use the language of putting your money to work to talk about passively investing in a savings account or in securities or something like that. That's kind of the common language of our culture. But those things didn't exist in the ancient world. This word to put to work is not about setting your money aside to sort of earn interest in an account while you go off and do other things. This has the sense of, it's not a passive action, it implies activity, it implies creativity, it implies ingenuity, it requires wisdom, initiative, cultivation. And this taps into a theme in scripture of fruitfulness that goes all the way back to the creation account in the first chapter of the Bible. When God created humanity, Genesis 1.28 says that he commanded us to be fruitful and multiply. And then Genesis 2.15 says that our job is to work and keep the garden, to, to cultivate and protect creation. And so there's this sense that it is a matter of stewardship. To be made in the image of God means to be a steward, a servant, an ambassador, a co-ruler with God, a representative of God who bears fruit for his glory with whatever he's given and entrusted to us. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
That means everything belongs to him and we're entrusted with managing it for a fruitful return to glorify God. So that's the sense of stewarding, all right? Now, the contrast here with the other servant is squandering. The one servant dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. Now, this is actually the typical way that people would try to preserve valuables in the ancient world. If you think about how things kind of functioned in the economy of the ancient world, uh, there was no FDIC insurance on a savings account. So there was no guarantee that if you gave your money to the banker that you get anything back. And so the safest thing to do in the ancient world, and it was very common, was to take uh, something valuable, take some money, or take a, a family treasure, put it in a box of some kind, and literally bury it in the ground. You see, the servant here, he acts out of fear and does the safest thing. He buries the money. Okay, that's the first contrast. Stewarding versus squandering. Now, let me show you the next contrast, and they're all, they're all wedded together here. The second contrast is joy versus fear. Joy versus fear, verses 20, 22, and then 24 to 25. First, we see joy. That the two of the servants, they, they cannot wait to go see the master when he returns. Now, verse 19, go there in the text with me. Verse 19 tells us that there was a long delay. And that after this long delay, which, by the way, Jesus is setting up and helping his disciples to understand it's going to be a while till he comes back. After this long delay, the master returns, as verse 19 says, to settle accounts. Another way to say this is that there will be a day of reckoning. Don't skip over this part, dear friends. This is the reality we all will face. There will be a reckoning for your life. There will be a reckoning for how you handled the treasure God has entrusted to you. Whether that be money or skills or relationships or time or whatever other opportunities he's, he's put in front of you for his kingdom. But, but what I want you to see carefully here is when he comes to settle accounts, this is not cause for fear. When you're living for the Lord, when you're being fruitful for his kingdom, in fact, it's something that should cause great joy. Look at the conversation as it unfolds. Go to verse 20 now. Let me read. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. The sentence structure of this is incredibly important. It's purposeful, the way that Jesus tells the story. So the way that this, this response by the servant is structured is in two different parts. First, he says, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. And then the response is, see, he, he says, I have gained five more. You've entrusted me with five, I gained five. But what I want you to see is very intentionally, right in the middle of those two phrases is one little word, see. And some of your Bibles say, behold. Or some of your Bibles say, look. This is like the pivot point of his response. This word in Greek, it carries this sense of wonder and awe and a sense of excitement, a sense of joy, a sense of, look at what I brought you. 
Imagine this. This servant comes to the master after the master's been away for a long time. His eyes are sparkling and he's bubbling over with enthusiasm. He's thrilled. He's proud of his work. And he exclaims in the middle of this sentence, look, master, I received five talents from you with open hands. Now look, I hold out to you with open hands five more. And then the exact same sentence, word for word, is repeated for the, the servant who had two talents. Friends, there is no fear at all in this. These two servants come with joy and excitement to share this news with their master. They're not cowering or avoiding eye contact or sort of hoping the master thinks it's okay that they did enough. They're not in any way afraid. They come freely with hands extended, thrilled to show the master what they had done. And they essentially say, freely I received, freely I give back to you, Lord. There's this sense of love and pride. It's like a child beaming with joy when they tell their parents about a success at school, an award that you won, or a promotion in a job, or something of that sort. And a parent looks at his child and says, I'm so proud of you. But friends, when the last servant comes to the master, the story is completely different. Here we see fear. The one servant doesn't want to see the master. Can you kind of sense that in the way that he speaks? Look at the words of this last servant again in verses 24 to 25. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came and listen to what he says. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Friends, this servant acts out of fear and self-protection. And what's revealed in this last line is in his responses, verse 25, we see a very familiar word. Did you notice? See, here's what belongs to you. This servant uses the exact same exclamation. Behold, look, but with a very different tone. He says, look, here's what belongs to you. Almost as an accusation with a sense of self-righteousness and anger. There's a heart issue going on underneath the surface here. He doesn't love the master or want to serve him. He'd rather protect himself. He doesn't see this as worth the risk. He'd rather bury the money. He doesn't find any joy in the opportunity to be fruitful for the master, but would rather blame and sulk and be angry. Friends, you got to understand, this, the, this servant's view of the master is dreadfully wrong. He's not a hard and merciless master. Remember, he gave according to ability. He knows the servant's capacity. He's only asking them to be fruitful within the capacity that he has ordained. He's also not harvesting where he hasn't sown. He went to each servant and reckoned with his own money that he entrusted to each of them according to their ability. 
this servant, out of his fear and selfishness and self-protection, has warped his understanding of God, of the master. That's the second contrast. Let me talk about the third contrast. And this kind of buttons up the, the different contrasts in this passage. The contrast is between good and faithful versus wicked and lazy. Verses 21, 23, and then 26 to 30. Okay, in the first sense, we see these words good and faithful, which is that two of the servants are promised increased responsibility after the master returns and a share in the personal joy of the master. And so uh, look at how this unfolds in verse 21. The master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Oh, how we should long to hear those words. When we arrive at the gates of heaven, can you imagine the Lord looking upon you and saying, Well done! Well done! Friends, this, these words should stir your heart to cause you to have this a fresh craving of a, a vision of the kindness and goodness and love of your heavenly father longing for him to look you in the eyes and say come and share in my joy the contrast here with this other servant is is stark the words wicked and lazy are describing this one servant who has his responsibility taken away and he's thrown out of the master's presence into the darkness. Whew. Jesus is, as Jesus is telling this parable, remember, he's speaking this parable to a crowd of people. His disciples are sitting there listening and you'd think that he would say something like this. Then the master said, well, I guess you're not that bad. At least you didn't waste my money. At the very least, I'm, I'm so glad you buried it, because at the very least, I got my money back. It could have been worse. This is not at all what comes out of the mouth of the mess. Rather, Jesus makes this startling claim. He says, if you live in fear... If you try and protect yourself, if you squander your life as an opportunity to bring glory to God in whatever place he's put you, with whatever opportunities he's given you, you are in fact wicked and lazy. If you heard these words spoken by Jesus, they would be unforgettable. You would be shocked. The, these words actually rhyme in Greek. And so they would have stuck in your mind. They would have continued ringing in your ears and bouncing around your head. It would have been like calling the third servant pernicious and unambitious or diabolical and lackadaisical. There's this sense of the rhyming of those words even conveys how drastic this is. Friends, what you need to understand is that this wicked and lazy servant thought that he had dug a hole in the ground to preserve himself. And in fact, he had dug a hole in the ground that turned out to be his own grave. The contrasts, we need to, we need to talk about how we apply this, friends, because when we look at the contrasts in this passage, 
They are, Jesus develops these contrasts to give us this stark picture about how we can approach our lives in two completely different ways. And we can, on the one hand, we can either joyfully bear fruit for God's kingdom. Or on the other hand, we can begrudgingly squander opportunities for God's kingdom. This applies in all kinds of ways personally. Friends, God has entrusted you. I just want you to think about your own life right now. God's entrusted you with relationships, with skills, with resources, with, with time, with money, with all kinds of things that you can see as opportunities to bring him glory. This could be in your home, whether that's through your marriage, through parenting, through through the way that you manage your household, through the way that you interact with your neighbors, you have opportunity upon opportunity within your home to say, I'm going to let this be about the kingdom of God and not mine. There's opportunities in your workplace to do really good work that glorifies God, to have integrity, to help others, to go be a person who is light in a dark place. And then there's opportunities in the church. There's opportunities as we're gathered together as a community of faith to serve and give and care for one another. I'm sure there's, there's, there's endless ways we could, we could apply that personally. But I want to take a moment, because I think this is important here at this inflection point in our church, to talk about how this applies to us as a whole church family. I want to be really clear. God has entrusted us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the greatest treasure ever in Jesus. And while we await his return, he has sovereignly commissioned us as he does his church in local contexts worldwide. He, he sovereignly commissioned us for such a time as this to boldly bear witness to the good news of his cross and his resurrection in our community. You see, oh, I, I, many of you, some of you know this. This church, God has used this church family for over 40 years through many ups and downs to bear fruit for his kingdom. And there's some of you in this room who know the struggles, the sacrifices that it took to keep the doors open during the lean years to continue faithfully working towards proclaiming and then living out the gospel together as a church family. And now here we are. We are stewards of the hope of Christ, entrusted with a treasure that we want to invest for kingdom impact for another 40 years of generational fruit that glorifies God as people young and old Trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Friends, this is why we preach the gospel boldly. This is why we teach our kids the Bible and model to them a vibrant faith. This is why we think carefully about the cultural moment that we live in. And then we embrace God's truths that destroy cultural idols and false saviors. This is why we're working to develop our prayer ministry and why we had an evangelism seminar yesterday. We had 25 people come and learn about sharing our faith. We did a little bit of role-playing, and so we was kind of practicing evangelism. 
25 people there. We had 25 people come to Christ yesterday in our evangelism seminar. It's amazing. 100% success rate. Friends, this is why we talk about missions near and far. Why we're launching growth groups and training courses and accountability groups. Why we're developing a disciple by doing strategy that essentially is going to make our property into a hobby farm and expand our facility to teach science and art and music and theater and all kinds of other activities that show how faith in Christ touches every part of our lives. That God is sovereign over every square inch of his creation. As we look ahead, as has been mentioned, as we look ahead to that celebration Sunday in a couple weeks on the 29th, one of the foundational themes that marks this unique moment in the life of our church is that we want to creatively, boldly, generously steward this opportunity that we have to invest in God's kingdom that when we arrive in heaven, and the Lord looks back at what we did, what this generation of believers and how we are faithful to walk with him in the midst of the tumultuous times. Then when he looks back at, at us and what we have done by the Spirit's power through the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear fruit for this precious treasure of Jesus, the, the, the bearing fruit in our lives and in our community. Oh, how I long to look at that moment where Jesus would, the Lord would look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servants. Welcome home. Come and share in my joy. Let's pray. Lord, I, I know just knowing these brothers and sisters in this room that you have entrusted us with so many opportunities we are, as this parable has shown, we are so rich in opportunities to glorify you beyond our imagination. I mean, sometimes we can have, have a perspective of scarcity and sort of looking at things and saying, what could I possibly offer? Lord, I pray that you would redeem every moment, every relationship, every resource, uh, everything, every opportunity we have, Lord to put a new set of glasses on, to look at all of life and say, what can I do to make bear fruit for God with this? Lord, make us stewards of the message of Christ that we would bear witness to who you are and see gospel fruit generationally for the next 40 years through what you would do through our church. We love you, Lord, so much. And we just want to say, we want to be on your agenda to go where you want us to go, Lord, that we want to be your servants who enjoy open our hands to receive to be stewards of what you've entrusted and then open our hands to give back to you to glorify your name we pray this in Jesus name amen